Well, we're continuing in our series in uh, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. So if you could turn with me, please, to page uh, 972 in the Church Bibles, if you're using a Church Bible, page 972, Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 1. We're picking it up from uh, what Todd was preaching on last week. We're starting at verse 10 in chapter 1 of the, Paul's letter to the Galatians, page 972. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and remained with him for three days. But I saw none of the other apostles, except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorify God because of me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. One of the standing jokes in my family years ago was that my mother and I would make arrangements that used to go wrong. My late mother, who died some years ago. And on one occasion, we arranged to meet in a shopping center. I said, we said we would meet under the clock. What we didn't know when we said that was that there were two clocks. So we never did meet that lunchtime. Uh, it was the days, in the days before mobile phones, so you couldn't ring each other and find out where we were. The old analog days. Well, that was an accidental thing, a simple misunderstanding. But Paul here is continuing to talk about his opponents, 
and their misunderstanding of him is deliberate. It's based on malice. They're what we might call Judaizers, people who insisted that non-Jewish Christians must follow Jewish law and rituals in order to be saved. And they have accused him and have tried to subvert the people in these churches in Galatia. They have accused him of false teaching. And Paul has to deal with their accusations. There are three accusations. The first is that he is speaking to please man rather than for the approval of God. The second is that he has invented the gospel and it's not from God at all. The third is that he is preaching for his own benefit rather than for the glory of God. So he deals with these three accusations and I'd like to look at them with you. If you're of young years or of a youthful disposition, you may find the fact finders this week very helpful to you. I think there may be one or two left at the back. They also include a very useful map to show you from our reading where Paul went in this period. The three things I'd like us to look at from this part of the letter are first, the approval of God in verse 10. Second, the gospel from God, verses 11 to 20. And then the glory of God, verses 21 to 24. First, the approval of God, verse 10. Paul says that pleasing man and pleasing God are in opposition to each other. There is no possibility of combining the two. Either pleasing man is your priority or pleasing God. You can't do both. Most of us like to please other people. We like to be liked. We like to be approved of by other people. Often the people whose approval we want the most is our peer group, the people we hang out with or are seen amongst. We don't want to stand out as being different. We want to be accepted. But that leads us into trying to please man or to seek the approval of man. If Paul is saying we need to do something different, how do we move from seeking to please man to seeking to please God. We know that trusting in Christ and full repentance of our sins brings us approval from God because in knowing Christ, we come into union with him so that God, when he looks on, on us, sees Christ and his perfect obedience in his life, even unto death. God said openly in Mark chapter one that he was perfectly pleased with Jesus and as we are part of him, he is pleased with us too. Our growing love of Christ and faith in him mean that we should seek God's approval in what we do. We should seek to live in a way that is consistent with what God has set out for us in the Bible, the principles of what we should do and how we should behave. So Paul aims to live first and foremost in verse 10 as a servant of Christ, he says to serve and follow Christ in all that he does. He says if he didn't, if he wanted to please man, he wouldn't be a servant of Christ. They're two different things. 
And being a servant of Christ should be our aim also. Of course, it can be difficult, especially when we're younger and peer pressure is at its height. It's hard to stand out against something or to speak out against something bad that our peers approve of. But that can be part of seeking to please God. It's not always easy. In fact, to let you into a secret, it never was easy. And it wasn't easy for Paul. Paul says that his ministry is entirely initiated, entirely put into place by God. The grace of God had set him apart for his ministry, he says in verse 15, before he was born. God was at work in Paul's life to make him messenger to the Gentiles. And that reinforces our reading from Acts that we had earlier on. The Gentiles, the non-Jews. He was to be God's messenger to them for the glory of God, even in his strict Orthodox Jewish upbringing, even when he was persecuting the Church of Christ. God was at work. God used all of his life, even his zeal, to destroy the church, to make Paul effective in the gospel ministry to which he was now called. It wasn't that God chose Paul because of anything he had done. God's choice of Paul was a matter of pure grace on the part of God. As he says in verse 15, God called me by his grace. Being called by God was not an achievement. It's purely the grace of God to rescue a sinner. But it was a rescue with a purpose. God's purpose in calling and rescuing Paul was that he was to become his messenger to the Gentiles. Paul writes here in verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God had a plan from eternity for Paul. It wasn't a matter of God's foresight that God could predict things better than anybody else. It wasn't about God picking the best person for the job after looking at CVs of a number of candidates. It was God's plan made in eternity and executed with certainty. And if you're a Christian, God had a purpose when he rescued you, when he saved you from sin and death, when he called you to faith in Christ. And he has a plan for you. You have a part, as Paul did, in God's plan of salvation for all his people, all those called to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His purpose for you may not include being famous, going on long hazardous journeys, but it may include hardship and suffering and very difficult things. But God will fulfill his purpose for you as a Christian and he will fulfill them even if you get things wrong, as Paul did. God works out all things in accordance with his planned will. And we have the privilege as Christians of working with him in our lives, just as Paul did. Whatever our status or actions, we are called by God, as Paul was, and we are called for God, to be obedient to God, and to do all we do for his approval, not for man's approval. We also see that Paul's life is not solely one of prominent public ministry, but is centered on his relationship with God 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. Our lives are not just a matter of intellectual or moral abstract decisions, but we are relational beings like Paul, called into a personal relationship with God. In a human relationship, listening is of great importance. And we read here that Paul took time, a long time, three years, to listen to God, to be with God, to become established in his relationship with the Lord Jesus before he began his ministry. He writes in verse 16 that he did not immediately consult with anyone, but he went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, he went up to Jerusalem. God had not only turned Paul's world upside down, but he had called him into a new and living relationship with himself through the Lord Jesus. A new relationship takes time. The preparation for his new calling as God's prime witness to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world, took time for prayer and study of God's word and being apart with God. And these are important things for us too, an important part of our calling by God, of our lives as Christians. Christians are not called to solitude, but we are called to a quiet time of Bible study and prayer, which are an essential part of the Christian life each day for our own growth in our relationship with God and our own preparation for our lives under his call and for his approval. Second, the gospel from God, verses 11 to 20. When we speak the gospel to someone, the good news of the Lord Jesus, we explain, I hope, that he has taken on our human flesh and died for us by his resurrection, opening the way to everlasting life for us. But where does the gospel come from? The Judaizers, Paul's opponents, said that it was not in line with Jewish tradition practiced for centuries by the nation of Israel, but that Paul has invented this gospel by human logic or he's dreamt it up from his imagination. One of the themes of this letter is that the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus, is for all humanity, irrespective of origin or ethnicity, but it does not in any way have its origin in humanity. It comes only from God. Paul says that his own life shows this. His conversion to faith in Christ and his apostleship were not from human intervention or consultation but by direct revelation and through the direct intervention of Jesus Christ. Paul received the gospel direct from Christ on the Damascus road. It didn't come to him from Peter or any other human authority. It wasn't validated by the original apostles in Jerusalem, including James, who had become the leader of the church. It didn't come from them. And it isn't something that Paul had invented. It hasn't come from his own imagination or his own thinking or his own reflections about life. In fact, he had been the gospel's fiercest, strongest, most violent opponent as he sets out here. The gospel is from God. In verse 16, Paul says that it was God who was pleased 
to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's the gospel, and it was given by God. So Paul says in his defense that he is not peddling a gospel received from man. The gospel that he preaches is from God, and he is preaching on the authority of God. Paul isn't defending himself out of pride, but to defend the gospel, and out of a pastoral concern to reassure the Galatians to whom he is writing that the gospel they received is the true gospel, not a false message delivered by an untrustworthy messenger. They need to know that the gospel is from God and therefore is true, and that Paul is authorized by Jesus Christ and therefore is reliable as a gospel teacher. Of course, his opponents didn't like the fact that the gospel is revolutionary. And it is revolutionary. It's revolutionary because the people of Israel lived under a regime that was based on obeying the law given to Moses and a system of animal sacrifices. But it was revealed to Paul that trying to obey the law is an impossible goal and does not make us acceptable to God. We are only saved by faith in Christ and his finished work for us on the cross and in his resurrection. And also the gospel is revolutionary because it's for the whole world. Paul says he was converted to preach primarily to non-Jews, whereas God's dealings in the Old Testament had been focused on Israel as his chosen nation. With the coming of Christ, there is no racial or ethnic division. There is no distinction of backgrounds amongst God's people. All must come to faith in Christ to be saved. That's revolutionary. But even if the gospel is revolutionary, it comes from God. It's a gospel for all nations, a gospel through which, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God will call all his people from many nations to salvation through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And Paul's ministry is part of this. God had, in verse 15, set Paul apart from birth. God was at work in his life even when Paul was persecuting the church. And Paul is open about that now in this letter, even if he is ashamed of what he had done. But his life was turned around. He was called and commissioned on the Damascus Road. Then he left for Arabia, which, way, which in Roman times included much of what is now Saudi Arabia and Jordan and southern Syria, a wide area to the north and east of Judea. And you will see this on the map in your fact finders, if you have them. He returned eventually to Damascus. But it was not until three years later that he met with Kephas, or Peter, in Jerusalem. And briefly, he saw James. Because of his past, Paul was a very controversial figure in Jerusalem. So he left straight away for Tarsus, his home city, and ministered in Syria and Cilicia, where his past record was not known. One of Paul's aims in writing all of this and telling us all of this is to distance himself from his former life in Judaism. He underlines the shame of it by noting his persecution of the church, referring to the traditions of my fathers, the rabbinic teaching that was the foundation of Jewish life. Although he does not renounce his status as an Israelite, he makes it completely clear that he has broken 
altogether with the life of seeking righteousness through trying to obey the law of Moses and has come to believe firmly and totally that salvation is only possible through faith in Christ. Whatever his human feelings now, it is God who has determined all things. God set Paul apart from before he was born. God called him to faith in Christ and commissioned him for the life of Christian service to which God had called him and for which he had prepared him. Paul was not called because of anything he himself had accomplished. It was God who called him and God who prepared him and God who had purposed his ministry to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And if you have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is God who has called you and prepared you for what you need to do. Third, the glory of God, verses 21 to 24. The result of Paul's ministry was that God was glorified. When something good happens as Christians, we might say, glory to God, glory be to God. It's a great thing to say. But what does it mean? Paul's ministry in verse 21 had begun in Syria and Cilicia to the northwest of Judea. And he was unknown to the church in the province of Judea, around Jerusalem, because since his call to faith in Christ, he had hardly been there. He had only been in Jerusalem for a very short time to see Peter and James for a very brief time. And then he left straight away to go back north. But in verse 23, we read that the Judean church had now heard of Paul's preaching of the gospel and they glorified God because of him. Paul was called by God into the gospel ministry in spite of his previous sin and rebellion. He previously had a zeal for what he thought was righteousness, but that had not made him right with God and it had not brought glory to God. Only the gospel can make us right with God through faith in Christ. Only through the gospel can we bring glory to God. And as Christians, we are made and called for the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The glory of God is the outward radiance of his perfection. God's glory is not something that is outside God or different from God, but it's who God is. It is intrinsic to God. When in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked to see God's glory, he asked God, I wish to see your glory. God passed before him, but he covered Moses in a cleft of rock with his hand, so Moses would not be destroyed. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, God's personal name. God's glory, like his name, is intrinsic to him. So though we cannot see God or his glory, we see its effect in God's actions and being. In Second Thessalonians, we read of God's glory. We read of the glory of God's might. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6, we read of the glory of God's grace. And we see that God's glory is the ultimate goal of all things. And it's our ultimate purpose as Christians. Jonathan Edwards, the 18th century minister and theologian, wrote this. All that is ever spoken of in Scripture 
as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. God's glory shines upon and into the creature and is reflected back to God so that the whole is of God and in God and to God and God is the beginning, middle and end of all. God's goal in all things is to reveal his glory. God reveals his glory in creation, in his governance of the cosmos and in redemption. And the glory of God is focused in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans chapter 16, verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, for God has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And our main goal in life is to give glory to God. In Romans 9, verse 23, we are redeemed, Paul writes, in order to make known the riches of his glory, the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Or in Romans 15, verse 7, Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Or in Romans 15, verse 9, Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Even in assessing our sin, the glory of God is the yardstick that Paul uses in Romans 3. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If someone asked you, you're a Christian, what is your main purpose in life? What would you say? The Westminster Shorter Catechism begins with that very question. And the answer in that catechism, 1.1, the first answer, reads like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The enjoyment and the glorification of God are part of the same thing. Living or dying, we are here to glorify and to enjoy God, to have a relationship with God. Well, how can we do that? God is most glorified in his justified people when they are most satisfied in him. That's why in the words of the old hymn, we should live our lives rejoicingly. I'm not sure if it's even a word. Somebody will correct me or not. I think it's a great word. We should live our lives rejoicingly. In rejoicing. Jonathan Edwards again wrote this. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. God's glory and our joy in his glory run together into everlasting fullness as the goal of our lives. We have trouble understanding God's glory because we start looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope. We start with ourselves. But God's glory is not like our glory. We get glory and we seek glory for ourselves when we win a sporting match or we get good exam results, or we get admitted to a good university, or the place we want to go when we have success in business, when we win an award. But God's glory isn't like our glory. 
We'll have to rethink all that when we come to God's glory. God loves us and gave his son for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. He was unjustly condemned and humiliated and tortured and suffered extreme pain and death for us. Jesus put us before his own pain and hardship, before his own life. But although all that he did was for us, what he did was primarily for the glory of God. Just before his crucifixion in John chapter 17, verse 1, he prays, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Even in saving us, God does not give his glory to us to his own exclusion. He delights to save us, but not by denying who he is. To give us his glory, to exclude himself from his glory, would be to rob himself of the glory that is due to him. It would be to sin against himself, and God cannot sin. God does not set our salvation above his glory. Our salvation is subordinate to his glory. Both are achieved by the finished work of Christ, but that work is for God's glory first, and under that to save us. This is not selfish on the part of God. Selfishness implies sin and disorder, but God cannot sin. God is not disorderly. He cannot act against the absolute truth and moral rightness of his own being or against the glory that is his due. For us to regard our own glory as our ultimate goal is the great root of sin because we are sinful and not worthy of glory. But God is worthy of all glory because he is sinless. He is perfect. His worth is not like our worth. He is on a scale of being that does not allow us to measure ourselves against him. He is the supreme goal of every right action. He delights to glorify Christ who radiates his own glory back to him. And we are not excluded from that glory, which is shared with us in Christ so that we radiate his glory back to God in our own lives. The glory that is shared with us is to bring glory to God alone. And as the children of God, we will be glorified with the glory of God. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18, we, will, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In Romans 8, verse 30, he wrote, Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why will God glorify us with his glory? Jesus said that his goal for us is that his joy might be fulfilled in us and our joy might be full in John's Gospel 15 and 17. We will be glorified so that we are fully satisfied in God, and God will be glorified in our satisfaction in him. The glory of God is the ultimate goal of our lives, as it was for Paul. God called Paul to the ministry he gave him and for which he had prepared him throughout his life, even in his rebellion, to serve God to the glory of God. And God has called us, God has called you to serve him in your life to his glory. Whatever you are called to do, God will prepare you for it 
It may be difficult or painful. But in all we do, we are to seek God's glory. Paul did not seek the approval of men, but preaching the true gospel from God, he sought above all things the glory of God. In every part of our lives, we must seek to do the same. Let's pray together.